Throughout most of his life, my father has owned horses. He grew up with them and he wanted his kids to learn how to ride and care for them. So when my parents bought a small farmhouse in Virginia back in 1981, they got a few horses as well and they taught us all how to ride. Allergies eventually forced me to abandon all hope of being a rodeo star, but I continue to love those incredible creatures. One of the things I learned on that farm as a boy is that thoroughbreds do not like to be confined to their stalls. You can pacify them for a while with oats and hay, but they soon start to snort and blow and cry to be let loose. Wait a little while longer and they get angry. They start kicking the walls and the stall door just to make sure you know that they're ready to go. Leave them longer still and they can eventually become dangerous, biting at you if you stray too close. I learned early on that when it's time to let a thoroughbred loose from his stall, you stand to the side and you keep close to the wall when you open the door. Because when he comes rearing out, he'll be kicking and bucking, partly in indignation and partly in relief. I've had this image in my mind lately as I think about all of us. We do not like to be kept in stalls. We can be pacified by television and takeout for a little while, but soon we turn angry and violent. After a year of living in various states of isolation, we are rattling our stall doors and we are ready to bust out. Desperate for freedom, and for a return to normal, we are likely to burst out of this past year and run as far and as fast as we can in the opposite direction. I've heard social commentators wondering aloud if the summer of 2021 will look like the roaring 20s when our society coped with the post-traumatic stress of World War I by plunging into a season of unfettered hedonism. Now, I don't know if this will happen, but I do know that it is human nature to move from one season to the next without pausing to reflect or evaluate, especially when the season you're leaving, you've spent locked up in a stall. I don't want for us to fall into that trap. I want us as God's people to stop and to reflect and to prepare carefully for a new normal whatever that may look like. Oh, in light of that, last Sunday we kicked off a series of sermons called Rethinking Normal. It's an attempt to take stock of who we are, what we've learned during this difficult year, and how we want to move forward. Each week during this series, we will listen in as Jesus teaches his disciples the basics of the Christian life, reminding ourselves what matters most as we look ahead to what's to come. You know, one of the hardest things about this past year has been loss of control over our daily lives. We have battled an unpredictable virus that kills some people in days and passes through others without any symptoms. We've been subject to the whim of sometimes ill-informed decision makers. And though the markets have had a good year, our economy is still manifestly unstable. Instability, uncertainty, and loss of control have been the hallmarks of this year. Now, this has been hard, but not without benefit. 
Because this year has exposed the insecurity of life itself. And it raises the question that I want for us to address this morning, which is this. How do we handle the fundamental insecurities of life? How do we handle the fundamental insecurities of life? We're going to answer that question by listening in to Jesus as he teaches a crowd along the shores of the Sea of Galilee. So turn with me to Matthew 6 where we began uh, in verses 19 to 21. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, the favorite stories of my childhood always included buried treasure. These stories are popular with most of us because they tap into something fundamentally human, which is our longing for security and comfort. In this case, provided by a chest of gold buried in the sand. Now, unfortunately, buried treasure is hard to come by. But this doesn't erase our longing for security. It simply redirects it. Instead of looking for treasure maps in dusty antique shops, we go to work early. We study the markets for good opportunities. We maximize profits. We create nest eggs. We seek competitive advantages. Now, in and of themselves, all of these things are fine. And often they are simply wise. Working hard, being successful, and making money are not morally wrong. The problem comes when we believe that if we accumulate enough resources, we'll have control over our lives. We'll be comfortable, stable, secure, and finally independent. Now that, that's a lie. The accumulation of treasure for the sake of personal security is the equivalent of carefully building a beautiful sandcastle by the edge of the water at low tide. It's a waste of time and it ends in tears. In these first few verses, Jesus is making a simple, rational argument by appealing to our common sense. The things that you think give you security, money, power, retirement accounts, property, these are all vulnerable assets. You cannot protect them while you're alive and you cannot take them with you when you die. You know, Jesus isn't telling us how to be good here. He's telling us how not to be stupid. He's saying that pursuing material wealth for the sake of comfort and control is the eternal equivalent of investing in a Ponzi scheme after the guy who runs it has been accused and arrested. Jesus then says that there's a better way to find security and the peace of mind that comes with it. Instead of investing in and depending on the treasures of this world, invest in the treasures of heaven. We say, great, what does that mean? Well, later in our passage, Jesus says the same thing in a slightly different way. In verse 33, he says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. The kingdom of God is present wherever Jesus Christ is Lord. 
It's present here and now as we worship and as we seek to serve him. And it will continue forever when Jesus returns to renew his creation and redeem his chosen people. So to seek the kingdom means to accept Jesus as Lord over your life. The way to store up treasure that can't be touched and will never be destroyed is by honoring him, obeying him, and using your resources not to build up a false sense of security, but in order to serve him. How do we handle the fundamental insecurities of life? By choosing our treasure wisely. That's our first point. Choose your treasure wisely. Well, Jesus continues in verse 22 with an analogy that is not immediately clear to us. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? This is a little confusing. We typically think of our eyes as organs of reception. Right, So light comes into them and our brains objectively process what we see. Well, the ancients had a more complex view. Not only do our eyes perceive light, they believed, our eyes project light. So they're like lamps out of which shines the light within us. This means that not only do we perceive the world through our eyes, we project our values onto it as well. The way we see things is a window into our hearts. A bad eye then, it warps the world even as it perceives it. It projects greed, envy, and acquisitiveness onto the world. A healthy eye or a bright eye sees the world as the gift of God to be received and stewarded. So Jesus' enigmatic proverb, it actually raises a very practical question. What values are you projecting onto the world? When you see a nice car, do you want it for yourself? When you read about someone else's success, are you irritated or envious? When you miss an opportunity to make a profit, do you seethe with anger? Do you see your assets as something to protect at all costs or as something to share? Do you store up things for yourself? Or do you spend generously for others? And as it turns out, our eyes are a great diagnostic tool for checking on the condition of our hearts. As Jesus said in the preceding line, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. And this, I think, is why he shares this proverb here. So our second point is check your vision. Check your vision. Ask yourself honestly, how am I perceiving the world? Is my default setting acquisitiveness, envy, or greed? Or is it generosity and gratitude? Checking your vision enables you to assess what treasure you've actually chosen. We can say we love Jesus all we want, and we can claim to follow him faithfully, but it's how we see the world as we drive, as we talk with friends, and as we surf the internet that reveals the true state of our hearts. Choose your treasure, check your vision. My third point is this, comprehend the deeper meaning of Jesus' teaching. So in the next verse, Jesus takes things to a new level. He says, no one can serve two masters. 
For either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So all of a sudden, that idea of choice implied back in verses 19 to 20, it's overshadowed by the language of love and hate, masters and slaves. We think we choose our treasures. Well, as it turns out, whatever you choose to treasure will soon become your master. Now, most of you have either read or watched the Lord of the Rings trilogy. One of the most pitiful and compelling characters in Tolkien's imaginary world is a creature called Gollum. Gollum is the one who first finds the ring of power and claims it as his own. Instead of bringing him power and riches, however, it drags him down into darkness and despair. Throughout the novels, Gollum refers to the ring as my precious. And when he has it, he strokes it. When he loses it, he longs for it. He makes himself crazy with desire. He follows the ring across the world, seeking only to steal it back from Frodo, whose task it is to carry it to destruction. Gollum believes that the ring is something to be possessed. What he doesn't realize is that the ring possesses him. In the same way, when we put our treasure in things on earth, those things possess us, they master us, and they shape our lives in fundamental ways. Jesus wants us to grasp this. He wants us to understand that the question of personal security isn't just a matter of making a wise choice about what to treasure. It's actually a matter of submission. Either we will submit ourselves to earthly treasures or we will submit ourselves to the God of the universe. We can be Gollum or we can be Frodo. But there's a problem that Jesus identifies here. Most of us, most of us just try to have it both ways. We want to trust God with our lives, but we also feel like we need to provide for ourselves. You know, I would, I would be willing to guess that few of us doubt God's ability to provide for the needs of his people. We just don't trust him to do so. So we spend our lives putting together backup plans in case God doesn't come through. And as a result, we live with divided hearts. You know, the problem with affluence is that it gives us the illusion of control. Most of us possess more worldly treasures than we like to admit. We've got a positive balance in our bank accounts. We own our homes. We have savings. We don't worry where our next meal will come from. Life is pretty good. Our treasure, it gives us a feeling of being in control. And we think to ourselves, if I just had a little bit more, I would finally feel secure. That is a dangerous lie. If the pandemic has given us anything, it's the gift of a more honest view of our lives. We are not in control. Uncertainty, it's endemic. Independence is illusory and all too quickly lost. Life is fragile and death lurks around the corner. We need to receive this gift and remember that true security can only come from total submission to God. Anything else, anything else is going to leave us divided and it's going to send us into despair. 
That's the deeper meaning that Jesus wants us to comprehend. But you know, there's a problem with total submission. It makes us anxious. Which of course, Jesus knows because it's what he talks about next. Three times in the next paragraph, Jesus says, do not be anxious. Now, Jesus knows just as well as we do that there is nothing more unhelpful for an anxious person than to be told not to be anxious, right? So when Jesus says, don't be anxious, he's not saying, would you just stop worrying for crying out loud? He's not saying that. What he's saying is, look, you don't have to live like this. You can leave your divided heart behind and trust the God who made you. And he follows this up with an explanation in the form of an invitation. Consider the Father's love. And that's our final point. Jesus says to the crowd, therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, don't be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. The crowd that was listening to Jesus when he said these words was sitting outside in a vast natural bowl along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus says to them, look up at the birds. Now look down at the flowers and run your hands through the grass. God cares for every sparrow, every blossom, and every blade. How much more will he care for you? Scientists estimate that there are somewhere between 200 and 400 billion birds on the planet. I love Google. These things, I mean, how else do you know these things, right? 200 to 400 birds on the planet. That means that for every human being, there are 40 to 60 birds. Each and every one is known by God and fed by God day after day after day. God cares for the birds but he cares for us even more. Jesus describes the beauty of the lilies by comparing them to the splendor of Solomon. Now think about this. Solomon was the wealthiest king in Israel's history with the most opulent court to ever reside in Jerusalem. He was perpetually resplendent. But the lilies that grow wild by the shores of Galilee are more beautifully clothed than Solomon. And we who put our trust in Jesus and set our treasure in heaven, we will be clothed still more beautifully than they. Every bird, every flower, 
every blade of grass is known to the God who made them. He cares for them, provides for them, and stewards them throughout their short lives. But you, you are far more valuable than these. Can you even begin to fathom this? Consider the Father's love, Jesus tells us. So how do we deal with the fundamental insecurities of life? We choose our treasures wisely, seeking the kingdom of God and not the treasures of this world. We then check our vision humbly, assessing the way we perceive the world as a window into our hearts. As we do, we comprehend the deeper truth of Jesus' teaching that we cannot serve two masters and we submit to Christ as Lord. Finally, in our frailty and in our anxiety, we consider the Father's love. Now, I love how Jesus ends this teaching. In verse 34, he says, Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. One day at a time, he says, one day at a time. He knows this is hard. He understands just how deep the drive within us is to make our own way and to provide our own security. He realizes that submitting to the Father and seeking the kingdom is difficult. Trust him for today, he says. And then let's take tomorrow when it comes. If we're honest, I think most of us have to confess that we live with hearts divided. We trust God, but we busy ourselves with backup plans. And we suffer. We suffer from the strain of this dissonance. We're about to enter into a time of prayer together. I want to ask you to take a moment to prepare for that time by coming honestly before the Lord. If you trust him, tell him so. If you're guilty of backup planning because you're not sure he's going to come through for you, tell him that as well. And then ask him to show you his love. The love that sustains every bird, every blossom, and every blade of grass. Let's pray quietly together.